The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, hi there. This is Rabbi Mel Glazer. Your uh, empowerment grief guy from morning to morning who tells you every week that it is possible for you to move from morning to morning. And each week we either talk to somebody or we uh, read a text or we do something so that we can dig deeper into mourning and be able to better understand it and how to better work with it and how to better move away from it. So before I start the um, sharing with you some uh, a recent article that I read about kids and helping them deal with death, I want to tell you about a comment that I heard yesterday. So I have a grief class that meets once a month at my congregation. And I have two women in it. And one of the um, husbands of one of the women died maybe six months ago. And the other one, her husband died um, 15 years ago, but her brother died recently and somebody else in her family died recently. So we're talking about all that. And the woman whose husband died recently, when I asked her how she was feeling, she said, I'm anxious all the time. And I asked her if she could explain to me what did that mean, that she was anxious all the time. It was so interesting what she said. She said, you know, we bought a new house two years ago. We downsized. We did everything right. He wasn't sick at the time. He got sick a year into the new house move. And then he was sick for a year and then he died. But every night when we would both be home from work, I was in one room doing my reading, and Ed was in the other room, either doing reading or watching TV or doing something else. And so now she comes home and she's all alone. There's nobody there. 
So that's what she feels anxious about. And when she hears a noise, you know, everybody hears noises frequently in their house, and they don't mean anything. But, you know, you get used to certain people being where they are, and he died. So he's not there. So she's anxious about that, about being alone, about hearing things sometimes that she doesn't know what they are. And she, you know, she's trying to get over it. She knows she needs to get over it, but she doesn't quite know how. So um, we talked about that and we talked about, and she knows, she said she feels good, but she was in tears, you know, and I come with Kleenex for everybody, including me, because sometimes their stories are so very sad that, you know, they bring tears to my eyes as well. It was just interesting to hear a response. She used the word anxious. And she, I asked her if she had, uh, if she went out, and I know she has lots of friends, so she said, yes, I go out, and sometimes I just decide I don't want to go out. I want to stay home. I said, you know what? That is very normal. It's absolutely normal to make your own decision, and that's what she does. So I just thought it was interesting, and I wanted to share it with you um, before we started our uh, official topic tonight. So the official topic is, um, how do you deal with kids with death? How do you explain death to kids? How do you, how do you, what do you do? And I wrote, and I've talked about it before, my daddy died two days before I turned 12 years old. And I didn't know anything. I knew he was sick because he spent the whole year at home, not at work. And he never told us what was wrong with him, so we never knew. It's interesting because he once, they were ta- he was talking with the cleaning lady that we had in our home once a week. And he said to her, you know, I'm dying. And she was a woman of great empathy And she told him, well, you know, if God has decided that it's time for you to go, then I guess that's what it's going to be. He wouldn't talk to us about death at all. And Mama was, she was afraid herself, so she never talked to us either. And then came the day where he died. And my sister and brother, younger than I, We were staying at our aunts and uncles' homes for a few days before that. So the family came to get us, and they brought us home. And at home, all the family was there, the aunts and uncles and the cousins and everybody in the family. And Mama was sitting on the couch crying. We didn't know why. We suspected, but we didn't know. So they decided they would tell us individually. So... I'm the oldest, so 
Mama told me to sit on the couch next to her, and I did. And she said, I want you to know that Daddy died. And I was, I just broke into tears for all kinds of reasons, mostly because I really didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what was going to happen to us as a family in the future. And she uh, then told my younger sister and my younger brother, and we were all in tears and everybody was crying, as you can well imagine, because you've all been through this. And that's what we do. We cry because we love them. We miss them. And then I still remember my Uncle Jack, who was the oldest uncle. She, she, he was my mother's oldest brother. And he considered himself, you know, like the uh, master of the family. So he said to me, Melvin, you got to be the man of the house now. Well, I had no idea what that meant. What does it mean to be the man of the house? I was 12 years old. I had no idea what he was talking about. So then came time to get ready for the funeral. And Mama told us that we were not going to be able to attend the funeral. You're not going to go. It's going to be too hard on you. I don't want you to cry. And that's the way it used to be. Um, parents did not want their kids to cry. They wanted to try, they thought, to protect the kids from tears. So we didn't go to the funeral. Now we know that kids should go to the funeral for all kinds of reasons. First of all, they know that something big has happened in the family. And they want, to be, they want to be part of the family. And if you don't take them to the funeral and the cemetery, then they will feel excluded from your family. And that's not a good thing. Because it carries on through the years that they felt excluded. The second thing is that they would have nightmares about the funeral. And they would have nightmares thinking that it was worse than it really was. You all know that a funeral is, it's not difficult ritual. It's a simple ritual. Uh, no matter what religion you are, or even if you are of no religion, you um, say goodbye. And there are prayers, perhaps, if you're in a religious service. And um, then you... As Jews, we cover the coffin with earth, cover it up. Um, some Christians do that, some don't. Uh, or uh, you cremate and you take the ashes home and you put them in your home until you decide what you're going to do with them. So we didn't go to the funeral and we felt awful. We did feel left out. We did feel as if they were ignoring us. We did feel all of those things, and we didn't like it. And it mattered to us because we were part of the family, and our daddy had died.
So what can I tell you? It was different then than it is now. Today it's different, and I am really so glad that it is. So I read this, um, let's move on. I read this article in September, last September, in the New York Times, I think, who writes about grief all the time. And uh, this is how do you deal with grief with your kids? So uh, I'll read most of it, and then I'll comment when I feel it's necessary. Okay, a few decades ago, children didn't often attend funerals. The thinking was that they should be sheltered from the pain of losing a loved one. And as Americans started living longer, the need to even broach the subject of death was delayed because many grandparents survived deep into their golden years. Well, that happens now too, but kids grow up, you know, and so now I say, you talk to your kids about death when they're kids. You, you could take them to visit the cemetery. I've taken school classes for my congregation to visit the cemetery every year. We have a class trip near the end of the year and we visit our cemetery and we visit the graves and I explain to them the Hebrew writing that's written on each grave, and um, so they'll know. And they won't be afraid. And I take them to the cemetery before they have to go to the cemetery. So when they have to go to the cemetery, they're not scared because I've been with them already, and I take care of them, and I explain to them in as loving fashion as I can, you know, what's what goes on at the cemetery. What exactly is happening here? So, um, it goes on. But recently, the opposite view, that children should be as involved in the grieving process as adults are, has been taking hold, reflecting an increasingly common belief that children are better off when their grief is acknowledged and they are allowed to mourn in the company of relatives and peers. That's what I said. Uh, you know, so now we take them to the cemetery. Uh, even though they're old, it's, see, it's different in another way too. Because when I was growing up, or when you were growing up, your grandmother lived near you. So you saw her all the time. You might have lived with her. As my family, some of them live with my bubby, with my grandmother. So when she, my bubby, got sick, we all understood it. And we talked about it. And we were right there with her to comfort her. Now it's different because families don't live near each other anymore. So... Sometimes, you know, Bubby will die, and the grandchildren and the kids, sometimes the adult children, live in somewhere else. 
And so it's much harder than it ever has been before. That's a society thing. We used to live together. Now we don't. And so it's harder to connect about anything. Never mind death. Okay, back to the article. Grief centers for children are one example. There are now more than 300 of these nonprofit counseling centers, up from 204 in 2002. And the executive director of what is called the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, it's a very famous center, which helped establish these centers, estimated that there are at least 150 more peer-to-peer programs nationwide that serve a similar function. The rise of hospice care, which provides bereavement services for relatives, including children, has also played a role, as have grief camps for children. Uh, This morning, I was um, visiting a hospice, visiting a man who was uh, old and weak, and I think he couldn't talk. He was awake. He knew I was there. He knew who I was, but he could not talk. But I, I have a feeling that he knew what his future held for him. So I leaned down, and I took his hands in mine, I said, you know what's going to happen. So this is what you have to do. If anything is incomplete in your life, if you're still angry at somebody, you have to have your son, who was there too, you have to have your son call this person up. And all you have to do is say into the phone, I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or I apologize for whatever it was that I said that might have hurt you. You have to do that before you die. You cannot do that after you die. And when you die, you want to die clean. You want your soul to be as clean as possible. And so he nodded his head. Now, whether he's going to do that, I really don't know. But that's what I told him. That's what I would tell you, and that's what I will tell myself when the time comes. We're going to pause for a break, and I'll be right back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? 
If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, this is Reverend Lynn Glazer. From Morning to Morning. And we have been talking about how do you um, deal with explaining death to kids. Uh, All of us have been kids when somebody has died. Could have been your pet. Do you remember when your pet died? Oh, I remember when my dog died. It was horrible. It's just horrible. I know what to do. You know, I used to be into pet loss. I'm not, I don't do pet loss so much anymore. And I'll tell you why not, because when a pet dies, you make a decision quickly, like in a day or two, about whether or not you're going to buy a replacement pet. And it's so interesting because there are different opinions, obviously. One opinion says, I'm not going to buy another pet because I don't want to deal with their death, and eventually they're going to die. So I'm not going to buy another pet. The other opinion says, yeah, I love Sparky so much that I want another dog just like him, or different, but I want a dog because my dog becomes my best friend. So the death of a pet is really a rehearsal for the death of a loved one, an older loved one. The death of a pet is a rehearsal because you mourn a pet the same way. There's really very little difference between mourning a pet and mourning a person. You love them, you don't know what to do, but you figure it out. And so people make decisions and, and there wasn't They didn't need my help and my grief advice. So I decided, you know what? People are going to do what they're going to do. I'm going to not do pet loss anymore because I I don't need to do that. So, um, okay. Let's go back a little bit. So I was talking before about Um, this peer-to-peer program that serves the function of connecting kids up with death. And I was saying that I take my um, 12-year-olds, my bar mitzvah class, to the cemetery every year on a field trip because I want them to be at the cemetery 
visiting before they have to be there mourning somebody's death. So we go and I explain to them, you know, everything there is. Uh, I take them to gravestones. I have them run around the cemetery. I say, I want you to find the oldest gravestone here. And you'll tell me what it is. Um, and they do that. And it's really very nice. I mean, they learn things then that they're not in the mood to learn at funerals. But they already know them. And so I teach them their traditions, our traditions, our Jewish traditions. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you have to familiarize your kids as much as you possibly can with the topic of death. You do that in lots of ways. You, when you're watching a TV program together, for example, somebody dies. Well, there's your opportunity to talk about it. There's your opportunity to help them understand. There is a golden opportunity. Now, they know the difference between somebody who gets shot on TV and somebody who really gets shot. They understand that. You don't have to worry. They don't fantasize about the wrong kinds of things. They know that a real death is different than a death on TV. So you, you uh, whatever opportunities you have, you know, your job as parents is to share that with kids so best to, better to prepare them for when the time comes. Understood? Of course you understood. So the next thing the article talks about is somebody says um, that kids who, it, it, it calls them silent mourners because most kids do not know what to do. They don't know how to mourn. They just don't know. And they're silent. And that's not a good thing at all. It's not a good thing. You can't let a kid be a silent mourner. Because if they start off life in silence when bad things happen, they're going to stay that way. And that's not what you want. Not at all. So the article goes on to talk about this and, and says what I've tried to say in different ways, and that is, um, you have to talk about death when the time, before the time comes so that the kids will get it. And you have to make them, I don't want to say feel comfortable with death, but that is really what you need to do. You need to help them feel comfortable with death. Okay? We got that. So let's move on to some other stuff. Um, I have another uh, article that's kind of lovely. 
um, although it's sad, it's about death, but it's a, I think, uh, just a, a lovely emotional kind of thing. Um, it is about a man and woman who get married and they're both in a nursing home. I don't remember whether it's a nursing home or it's a hospice, but they, you know, they're both dying and uh, they fall in love with each other. There was a Supreme Court justice, I can't remember her name, and her uh, mother was in a nursing home and her mother had Alzheimer's. And one day, the nurses report that um, mama has a boyfriend. And uh, the Supreme Court justice says, what do you mean mama has a boyfriend? Well, mama has a boyfriend. So uh, mama went over there and saw that there was this friendship that was growing between these two adults both of whom were not in good shape. Um, let's see if I can find it. I'm having a hard time with my computer today. Forgive me. But that's the essence of the article. That is, oh, it's called A Wedding in Intensive Care. So let me pull it up for you and share it with you. I was, I was crying at this one. So, okay. So let me, let me take care of this. Wedding in intensive care. And I'll move this over. Okay, good. There wasn't going to be a happy ending. The patient had metastatic cancer and had just gone through her third unsuccessful regimen of chemotherapy. Now it seemed that everywhere we looked, we found disease. An x-ray of her belly revealed an obstruction in her intestines. A CAT scan of her chest uncovered a pulmonary embolism. Her labs demonstrated that she had almost no white blood cells left with which to defend herself. Some of your parents have gone through similar experiences, I'm sure. And they have died from these kinds of things. Or you put them in a nursing home or you put them in a hospice. You put them, you know, somewhere um, so that they can be cared for. Well, um, so she had no white blood cells left with which to defend herself. When she arrived in the intensive care unit, she was delirious. I asked her the usual questions about her medical history and whether she wanted us to do CPR if her heart were to stop beating, but she didn't answer. I was just setting the clipboard aside when she raised a hand and told me in a moment of lucidity, Doc, do everything you can. I need to make it to my daughter's wedding. 
Have you heard that before? Of course you have. It happens all the time. They know they're dying, but there's some joyous occasion coming up in the family. They decide they want to be there. And they go and they celebrate with the family. And then they believe that their life is over and they allow themselves to die. She was in a lot of pain. She had a tube down her nose draining her stomach. When is the wedding, I asked, next summer. I blinked. I blinked again. She didn't. She was looking right at me. At this point, I doubted whether she'd make it through the hospitalization, let alone eight more months. I didn't know what I could say. I put the stethoscope against her chest and retreated into silence. I met Stephanie the next day. That's her daughter. She was 24, but was only eight when her mother's cancer was first diagnosed. Stephanie's mother had Muratore disease, a condition that gave her a predisposition for malignancies. So Stephanie had shared her home with cancer for many years and had always seen her mother fight, fight the cancer, that is. But she knew that this time was different. The oncology fellow who had been treating her mother as an outpatient was the one to tell her that her mother was dying. Stephanie broke down, but understood there was no use denying it. The dream of a family wedding under the summer sun turned sour. Stephanie called her fiancé that morning. Crying, she told him the news, but he flipped the fatalistic script. Without hesitation, he told her, I want to be there too. And he proposed not only to have the wedding done sooner, but to have it done right there in the ICU. Nice, don't you think? Because they wanted Bubby to be there. Our team was used to dealing with all kinds of crises. Handling a last-minute wedding was not one of them. While having more than one opinion on a medical team regarding how best to manage a patient, that's fairly routine. But we received no pushback from anyone as we started to make arrangements for the wedding. Soon the whole medical team was involved. We sent a letter to the court to expedite the marriage certificate. A pastor and a harp player were booked. The hospital cafeteria baked a chocolate cake and the nurses brought in flowers. In just a few days, we were ready. My job says the doctor, was to make sure our patient's pain was controlled while also avoiding the confusion that is a side effect of narcotic medications. But almost miraculously, she didn't need pain medications for hours and was fully aware of everything that was going on. Don't you love it? I love it. Looking at the bride and groom from her hospital bed, she seemed more comfortable than I had seen her before. The whole day had an unreal feel to it. Everything felt like it slowed down. Sun shone through the windows and glistened on the bags of fluid. For once in the hospital, there were tears, but there was no pain. 
It felt as if after all these years of chasing our patient down, even the cancer took a break. The next morning, the family decided to transition to hospice. No intubation, no CPR, nothing that would prolong life. It was all about trying to make the patient comfortable. And yet four months later, she is still alive. Go figure, right? And doing as well as can be hoped in hospice. In today's outcome-driven, efficiency-obsessed medical world, it's easy to forget that healing patients isn't just about treating diseases and relieving symptoms. There are things doctors and nurses can do, meaningful interventions, like help patients fulfill final goals or spend quality time with their families that cannot be documented in a discharge summary or be converted into a blip on a screen. As a physician, I never liked the word miracle. I prefer to think in terms of medical outliers. You know what an outlier is? It's something or somebody on the outside of, of the normal way things happen. And yet that day of the wedding did feel like a miracle. It did. Physicians often share their parent, their patient's sorrow, but rarely their joys. No, we had not discovered the cure to cancer, but we felt we had achieved something powerful, freeing, if only temporarily, our patient from her disease. One of the nurses, smiling through her tears, spoke to me after it was all over. It was magical, she said. None of the patient alarms went off. So nobody else died during that wedding either. So there was some spirit when they got married. There was a spirit on the cancer ward, in the hospice. People die all the time in hospice. But when this wedding was taking place, nobody else died. Well, so... Southern nurse said it was magical. I say it was God. God's presence was in that hospice, was right on that floor, and God was taking care of this couple, uh, this young couple, and all the older people who didn't have long to live. Joy was brought to the world. I want you to think about that for a few seconds we're going to take a break and we'll be back in a minute follow us on twitter for more great ideas at voice america empowerment Encouraged and connected on our lively, award-winning Healthy Living Power Hour. Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com.
Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, I'm back, and um, I want to remind you that I've written some books on grief, and I would love for you to purchase them and read them and tell me what you think. One book is called And God Created Hope, and one book is called A GPS to Grief and Healing. They're different, but they're similar. In the first book, In God Created Hope, I divided the grief process into, oh, 13 or 14 uh, gateways, uh, chapters, if you like, and each chapter was introduced by a story from the Bible. And that story represented that stage that you were going through and was a way to connect you and the Bible to that stage. And I went the whole route from morning to morning. And then I'll tell you something very interesting. The book didn't sell. Why not? Because booksellers didn't know where to put it. On the bookshelves, they put it in the death section. Do they put it in self-help section? Do they put it in grief, in bereavement? Where do they put it? So I think they kept it in the back room. They didn't put it anywhere. So then I decided there was too much religion in that book, that most people are leaving organized religion, especially those in their 30s, so I rewrote the book, kept some, most of the stories, some of which I've shared with you, and wrote the second book called A GPS for Grief and Healing. And I, what I do in that book is take the journey and boil it down to three, not 13, but three stages, uh, accepting death, um, the second stage is conquering death. And the third stage is enjoying your new life. So, and God created hope and a GPS for grief and healing. All you got to do is Google Mel Glazer or go to Amazon and and write my name and you'll find those books available. So I encourage you because there's a lot more in the books that I have not gone over with you, but uh, I, I like them still. I still read them, believe it or not. 
shocked as I am that my name is on the cover, I still read those books. So we just talked about a wonderful story took place in a hospice where Bubby was dying quickly, and she told the doctor she wanted to live long enough for her daughter's wedding. So her daughter called her fiancé, and the fiancé being what we call in Jewish a mensch. He's a real human being, a humane being, somebody who really cares about other people. So he, he said, I want to be there. So he flies in, and they get married in her room at the hospice, in Bubby's room at the hospice. And the last thing I read in the article was that a nurse who was on the floor said it was magical. No, nobody else died during that wedding in that floor on the hospice. It was magical. And I said, wasn't magical. It was God's presence. Okay, I have one more thing for you this evening. I'm going to read you a letter that I wrote to a couple who made a terribly difficult decision. She was pregnant, and she was in her third or fourth month, I think. And all the tests told her um, that the baby was going to have real physical, emotional, mental, and other kinds of problems. And so she was advised by her mother, she was advised by her doctors to have an abortion. And she didn't know what to do. So her mother, whom I knew, um, I knew very well, still do, uh, she works in my synagogue now. So she talked, called me and we talked about it. And I suggested that as holy as a human life is, Judaism teaches that you are, you become a life when you are born, not when you are conceived. That life begins at birth. When the head comes out, the child is alive. Before the head comes out, the child is not alive. Now, I know that there are people out there in radio land that don't agree with that. But that's what I believe. That's what my tradition teaches. The birth begins, uh, life begins at birth, not at conception. Anyway, so the daughter decided, okay, she was going to have an abortion. She was going to end this potential life as difficult as that was going to be. So I wrote her a letter. This is what it said. I have just had meaningful conversation with mom about the terrible loss you both sustained. And she invited me to share some thoughts with you about loss and healing. First and foremost, my prayers are with you as you go forward. An experience like this does not easily go away from your hearts. What will happen, please God, is that as time goes on and you both recover physically, so the emotional pain 
will also lessen. You absolutely will smile again. You absolutely will be happy again, even with tears in your eyes and heart. And my eyes are now beginning to show a little tears. And I hope yours are too. It's very poignant. The storms come out at night. The sun shines in the morning. I say that to every mourner that I ever meet. No matter what happens, sun comes out in the morning. And that's a good thing. And that's a metaphorical thing. Because you need to celebrate life. Even as you mourn death and loss, you need to celebrate life. So I go on. The most important bit of wisdom I have for you is this. As horrible and heart-wrenching as it was to make the decision to enter life, I believe it was the correct one for several reasons. First, a life that she would have lived would not have been defined as living as you and I normally define it. The inability to speak, walk, take care of any everyday bodily functions and interact with others is simply not life. This actually was an act of your love toward her, not to mention the strength you showed in your final act of compassion toward her that reflected that love. Second, had she been born, and I know you spoke to other parents of similar kids, you know that your lives would have inalterably changed. Everything you did all day and all night would be focused totally on her. And you would have little else, you would have little or no time left for the two of you to spend together. As Jewish tradition says, your life is just as important as anyone else's life. I want to say that again. As Jewish tradition says, your life is just as important as anyone else's life. And before I finish the note, I want to remind you that when you are on a jet plane going somewhere and the uh, cabin attendant, I used to call them stewardesses, but I'm getting better at it. Cabin attendant talks about if there are any problems, they will be taken care of. If there is a loss of cabin altitude or pressure, then the oxygen mask will automatically drop down. And then she shows you how to put the orange mask on your face. Those of you who sleep with a CPAP machine like I do know exactly how to put the mask on. Those of you who have been in the hospital and have had other kinds of masks, you also know how to do it. And then she says, on every single flight, first, Hook up your oxygen, and then hook up those who are with you. First, hook up your oxygen, and then hook up those who are with you. And you and I know, if you're not any good, they're not going to be any good either. So that's why Judaism teaches 
your life is just as important. Now, that's a hard thing. It's a hard decision. Max will keep you joyously busy. It is true. And sometimes you will see his beautiful face and begin to cry, thinking about what might have been. That is all perfectly normal. I wouldn't tell too many people the whole story, not because it's none of their business, which it isn't, but because of the pain you will repeatedly feel each time you talk about it. You have your wonderful, loving mom and your close friends. And feel free to talk to me or not, as you may need to. I can listen. I can say nothing. I can advise. I can be your ally on this difficult journey. Know that my prayers are with you as you wander through your desert of loss. Shalom and God's blessings. Rabbi Mel Glazer. This I consider to be one of the most powerful notes I have ever written in my 42 years of rabbinic career and grief counseling. And, and I wanted to speak to their hearts. And I didn't want to hurt them. And I knew they were in pain. And I knew that this is the toughest decision they were ever going to make in their entire life. But they had the strength to do it. And that's why I said that that strength, which led them to make that decision to end that potential baby's life, that fetus's life, that strength was an act of love. Where did that love come from? I believe the love came from God. God is the force in the universe that gives us the strength to deal with what we have to deal with and to make those terribly difficult, awful, complicated, messy decisions about what we deal with as our lives go on. God is who gives us the strength. I believe that more than I believe anything else. So it was God who gave these wonderful people the strength to live themselves. Because now or then, this was written um, last June, June 30th, uh, 2015. They gave themselves the strength and the right to live a good life as husband and wife, wounded, there's a hole in their hearts, but they would be happy. So I share this with you, and if you ever want to talk to me about it, call me or uh, send me an email, rabbimel at griefok.com. It's been good to be together. I look forward to being together next week. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. 
please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.